Well, good morning. Uh, Merry Christmas to you. As, as Jim mentioned, we do have uh, some wonderful guests with us, my co-laborer in the gospel, Gavin and his wife, Kelly, and their three boys. Um, they are uh, dear partners in gospel ministry here in Carson City, and I'm so glad that you guys are worshiping with us. Now, we are not doing a Christmas Eve service here tonight, um, but if you are like a diehard candlelight Christmas Eve service person, Living Stones is going to be doing two Christmas Eve services tonight at 4 o'clock and 5.30. And so uh, they're over on the west side of town, so you'd love to, uh, you know, do a, a candlelight service. You, uh, I'm sure they would love to have you join them for that. Uh, we're going to be going to one of those services as well, and um, so it should be a wonderful time of worshiping with brothers and sisters across the city today. So thank you guys for being here. Uh, we'll turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. That's where we're going to be today, Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, and I realized that I, I preached on this passage last year, but um, I'm not going to preach the same sermon. It's a completely different sermon, since I'm sure everybody remembers very well uh, what I preached on last year. Um, now, before we get into our, our text for today, we are blessed to have a bunch of kids in here worshiping with us, which is awesome. Uh, kids, we're so glad you're in here, and you guys have a little clipboard with some papers on it. The very first paper on your clipboard is a paper to help you learn things today while I'm talking, because it can be kind of, kind of boring sometimes. I talk for a long time, right? But this will help you learn some things. And I'll make you a deal. If you fill out that sermon note sheet and you come bring it to me after service, there will be a, a, a reward. So there's incentive here, okay? Now, it's got to at least have some connection to what we're talking about today. If you write down Noah's Ark or something like that, I don't know if I can count that. But, um, but if you fill that out, come show it to me. You're, you know, I'm sure your parents can help you if you need it. But um, come show that to me after service. There will be a little reward for you. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20 is where we're going to be this morning as we celebrate Christmas. Um, now, we as human beings, we tend to be people of the present or the future, right? We're either living for the here and now or we're, we're thinking about what's to come. We're looking forward to Christmas or we're so excited it's Christmas morning, right? And then on the 26th, we're looking forward to Christmas next year, right? Um, but but we, we rarely think about past events that shape our world today. We, we tend not to think so much about history, about the past. Now, last time you took antibiotics, you, you probably didn't stop to think that less than 100 years ago, penicillin didn't exist. And that since then, millions of lives every year have been saved because of antibiotics, right? You probably didn't think about that historical event. Uh, the last time you turned on a light switch, you probably didn't stop to consider the impact that, that harnessing electricity has had in the world, right, since the 19th century. Um, the last time you drove your car, you probably didn't stop to think about how much the invention of the wheel 5,000 years ago completely revolutionized the way we travel and, and carry goods, right? It, it, the wheel's so good, we still use it today. But we don't often think about those things. Some of you have even experienced what it's like to live on both sides of a world-changing event. Um, for example, some of you can remember what it was like to fly before 9-11 versus now, right? That radically changed our world. Throughout history, there have been 
many world-shaping events that continue to echo down the corridors of time. And this morning, we're considering one of those world-shaping events. Um, in fact, I would argue that the event we're looking at this morning has had a greater and it will have a longer-lasting impact than any other event in history. Um, this event that we're going to look at this morning defines history itself. And, and not just the history of the world, but your own personal history as an individual. And of course, since it's the Sunday uh, nearest Christmas, we will be looking at the event of the birth of Jesus Christ. And the details of this event, even though it happened 2,000 years ago, are just as important and just as relevant for you and me as they were for the shepherds we're going to see in our text, as they were for Mary and for Joseph. You see, this morning we'll see that God in His goodness and in His grace has provided a Savior for all kinds of people. A Savior that brings true peace. A Savior that is the ultimate reason for rejoicing. Now let's read our text starting in verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible, we have some on the back table. Um, feel free to grab one of those and, and you can keep those. Starting in verse 1, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And when they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds said. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray together as we come to the word of God. Our great God, our King, we thank you so much for the words we just read. We thank you so much, Lord, that you have told us of the birth of your Son, that you have uh, demonstrated in the pages of, of Scripture that you love sinners, 
and that you have provided a Savior for sinners like us. Lord, we thank you that as we read these words, we see that there is true cause for hope, true cause for joy, Lord, even in the suffering that we endure and in the world around us that there is a reason to have true joy in the midst of it because of the birth of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I I ask you that you would bless your word today, that you would give us, uh, Lord, though this is a familiar story, that you would give us fresh eyes and fresh ears to hear it, that you would lift up our hearts as we think about how good you are towards us in sending your Son. Lord, I pray that you would help me as I proclaim your word this morning, that it would be helpful to your people and glorifying to your name. I pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, the title of this message is, Unto You a Child is Born. And in that is the good news that we read this morning. And as really, as we, as we go down the text, as we follow the narrative, we'll be hitting each of these points as we see God at work. And the, the very first thing we see in verses 1 through 5 is the census. We see a census that God keeps his word. God keeps his word. Now, the story of Jesus' birth actually begins before the birth itself. Uh, we read in verse 1 that the Roman emperor Caesar Augustus issued a decree that all the world should be registered. <clears throat> now, what he's doing is making a a proclamation that he's going to take a census. He's going to count the people in his empire in order to tax them. Um, But in reality, without realizing it, he's doing far more than that. As we'll see, the emperor's census is actually a part of God's plan to fulfill his word that he gave long ago. Now, when we look at verse 2, we see there's a, a little bit of a historical detail there. This is the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Um, now, I wouldn't, I think, do justice to this passage if I didn't bring up that there's a little bit of a question or controversy about this verse because when we look at uh, world history, we see that Quirinius was the official governor of Syria uh, starting around 6 AD. Now, that's a long time after Jesus was born. Uh, does that mean that there is a contradiction here? Well, only if you're, only if you're looking for one. Right? You see, the word governor doesn't necessarily mean an official title, right? The official office, but it can refer to a general position of authority. And we do know that Quirinius did have some authority over Syria at the time Jesus was born. Now, as part of the emperor's census, uh, verse 3 says, all go to their home, all, all go back to their own town. Uh, Joseph and Mary lived in a place called Nazareth, which was kind of in the northern part of the the area. Um, But that was not Joseph's ancestral home. And when we look at verse 4, we see that Joseph and Mary, the the text says go up, right? But they're actually moving south, going up in elevation um, to the city of David, to Bethlehem. Uh, Joseph was from David's family, from David's house and lineage, and so It's appropriate that David's hometown, Bethlehem, would be Joseph's ancestral hometown. Uh, Joseph, of course, doesn't make this journey alone, but he takes his wife-to-be, Mary, with him. Um, Mary and Joseph are betrothed, which is kind of like an engagement, but a lot more legally binding. And it really, in a lot of ways, allowed a man and a woman to be considered husband and wife legally while waiting to consummate the marriage after the wedding. 
right? And so they're doing what a husband and wife would do. They're traveling together uh, to Bethlehem. By this point, Mary's, she's pretty pregnant, right? This is not an easy journey for her. Um, it's not three months along. She's eight, nine months along, right? Uh, we don't know exactly how they traveled. They may have gone in a caravan, which people did for safety. Um, but it's very possible Mary did, in fact, ride on a donkey, right? There's a good chance, given her, her pregnant state, um, which may not sound like much of an improvement, but I'm sure it was better than walking. Now, when we think of censuses and, and taxes, uh, we think of bureaucracy, don't we? We think of a bunch of red tape, and the IRS is going to get us, and there's all kinds of things we could get audited for, right? And, and, and taxes and bureaucracy do tend to go together. Um, but here, the Roman, Roman Emperor Augustus is unknowingly playing a key role in God's redemptive plan, right? God can even use bureaucrats. Through his decree, Joseph and Mary have to go to Bethlehem. This is not a place they would normally be. They don't live there. They live in Nazareth. But Bethlehem's a very important city, and it's actually vitally important that they go there. You see, 700 years ago, God had promised something through a prophet named Micah. Now, here's what he said, Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. You can turn there if you'd like, or, or you can just listen, but God said, You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. God had promised to send a king and a savior from Bethlehem. Not from Jerusalem, not from Nazareth, not from New York City, from Bethlehem. Right. This is really, really important. You, you, you see, if, if Jesus wasn't born in Bethlehem, he could not be the Savior of the world. If Jesus was not born in Bethlehem, he couldn't be the Messiah. If Jesus wasn't born there, this promise would be unfulfilled. So it's very, very important that Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem for Jesus to be born. You see, God had promised that, and God is going to keep his word. He's going to ensure that what he promised will come to pass just as he said. And he can even use people and circumstances to accomplish his plans like this Roman emperor. I, I would even say that this is probably the greatest good that taxation has ever accomplished right here. It leads to the birth of the Savior in the town of David. God's word being fulfilled. And, and soon the Savior would be born. That's what we see in verses 6 and 7. The birth, God sends a Savior. God sends a Savior. Now, we don't know how long Mary and Joseph have been in Bethlehem by the time we get to verse 6, when, when the time comes for her to give birth. Um, but we don't really get the impression they've been there for a, a very long time. right? Um, while they're there, the time comes. Mary starts to feel the contractions, the pains of childbirth that were promised to her mother Eve back in Genesis 3. But these contractions were not just a reminder of the fall of man. No, these contractions Mary was having, they were a reminder that the one who would redeem them from the fall, who would redeem us from the fall, 
was coming. The, the offspring promised in Genesis 3.15 that we looked at a couple weeks ago, the one who would crush the serpent's head and restore what had been lost through Adam and Eve's sin was entering the world. And, and in the same way that you and I were born, the babe, the son of Mary, was born. And history changed. History changed. A Savior who was fully God and fully man enters the scene. He's fully infinite, and yet he's born a tiny baby. He's the creator, and yet he was conceived and knit together in his mother's womb. He's eternal, and yet he has a birthday. He was the giver of the law, and yet he was born under the law so that he could keep it and fulfill it in your and my place. He's the immortal, and yet born with a human nature that he might die for our sins. Nothing like this had ever happened before. But despite his inherent greatness as the King of Kings and as God incarnate, there was no grand reception, there was no parade in the streets of Bethlehem, no, we see in verse 7 that his mother swaddled him in a blanket. Just an ordinary blanket. Think about it for a moment. Just, just think about the paradox of this. The one who set the boundaries of the oceans and raised the mountains to their heights is swaddled in a blanket by his mother. I think of it, the one who created time and space is laid in a manger because there's no space for him in the inn. Yet this had been the plan from eternity past. This was not a, a hitch. This was not a hiccup. God the Father and God the Son had made a covenant to redeem us, agreeing that the Son would willingly humble himself to the lowest possible point imaginable. And even though being born as a human baby is incredibly humble when you're, you know, God, um, it, it wouldn't be the most humble thing this Savior would do. Right? Maybe second most humble. But there'd be one more step he would take. Philippians 2.8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ was born in part that he would die. Friends, this is how much God loves you. This is how much Jesus Christ loves you. That he would be willing to be born as a defenseless human baby in order that he might obey God's law fully and die on the cross for your sins. That, that he might trade your unrighteousness for his righteousness so that by faith in him, you can be forgiven and made right with God. I, I love my kids. I love my kids, right? But if we were in the grocery store and they said, Daddy, will you do this really silly dance? I don't know if I'd be willing to humble myself that much, right? I love my kids, and maybe I would do it, but hard to say. And yet Jesus Christ was willing to humble himself to the point of death because of his great love for you. And without being born, Jesus could not live that perfect life Without being born, Jesus could not die that sinner's death. Without being born, Jesus could not rise from the tomb to give you eternal life. 
Now, this is not just a, a quaint little tale, right? This is more than a Christmas card. But in the birth of the Savior, Jesus Christ, in His birth, we can find the very basis of an everlasting and unshakable hope that sinful people like you and like me can be made right with a holy God that we can have a relationship with the righteous creator of the universe, that you can be forgiven for every single thing that you've done wrong and the things you haven't even done yet, and that you can be transformed into a new creation here in the manger, in the cries of this newborn child, his, his little body wrapped in a blanket, in the most insignificant of, of outward forms, is the greatest hope of our salvation. And the world changed that night. The world changed that night. But here's the irony. If something like this happened today, something of, of great proportions, it'd be all over the news, wouldn't it? Right? We see insignificant things all over the news in our social media feeds, don't we? And yet here in the greatest event in history, who knows about it? Mary and Joseph? Two people. Two people. But this wouldn't be a secret for long. God wants others to know about the Savior that he sent. Um, but, but who God chooses to share that news with that might be a little unexpected. That brings us to our, our third point. The angel, God gives good news, verses 8 through 12. Now we, we zoom out of Bethlehem for a moment to the surrounding areas, to the fields where there's a group of shepherds. They're keeping watch on their flocks. Now, um, it's wonderful to celebrate the birth of Christ on December 25th, uh, but... And, you know, parents, if you need to plug your kids' ears or something here, uh, Jesus was almost certainly not born that day, right? The fact the shepherds are out in their fields tells us that. They would take their sheep out and watch them usually from April to November, right? But it would have been very strange in the minds of Jewish readers for the story to shift to shepherds at this point. Um, a lot of our contemporary Christmas imagery has kind of romanticized shepherds a little bit, right? Uh, you know, you get those little... Precious moments, ornaments, the little cute shepherds you put on, on the tree. Right? Uh, my mom made me a really cute shepherd's costume when I was a kid. But that's not how shepherds were in the Bible. Um, shepherds were actually considered scumbags in first century Jewish culture. One reason is that they were usually ceremonially unclean all the time. Right? They're constantly interacting with dead animals, which went against Jewish ceremonial law. Uh, they would interact with unclean animals being out in the fields like mice and things like that. And that meant they couldn't participate in the religious life of the Jewish community. They were on the outskirts. Another reason that shepherds were viewed as, as dirty uh, or dishonest um, is because they would often let their sheep graze in the fields of other people. And in the Talmud, which was kind of the rabbinic writings, uh, they said shepherds were no better than robbers and they could not bear witness in court. So they were untrustworthy, they were dirty, they were despised, they were the bottom of the barrel. In the minds of some, these would have been the last people God would have cared about. Maybe some of you feel like the shepherds. Maybe some of you feel you're, you're too sinful, you're too low. Maybe it's even a little awkward for you to be at, at church today, right? You feel, maybe I have too much of a past for God to actually be concerned about me. Um, if, if that's you, let me encourage you, pay extra attention to what happens here in verse 9. Shepherds are in their fields, and in the still dark of night, an angel suddenly appears to these lowly shepherds. 
And this isn't a mistake, right? He didn't get lost on his way to find somebody more important. He didn't have to make a detour. God wanted the angel to go to these shepherds because God wanted these shepherds, these lowly shepherds on the outside, to be the first to hear good news. He wants the shepherds to be the first to hear good news. Uh, friends, God doesn't prioritize the high and the lofty. He doesn't prioritize the rich and successful. Uh, he, he often in Scripture prioritizes the low, the weak, the sinful, people like you and like me. Jesus himself would say as an adult, 30 years later, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, God wanted to give these shepherds good news just like he wants to give you good news this morning. And this news that the angel is going to bring to them, um, it's so important that we read in verse 9, this angel surrounded by the glory of the Lord. Surrounded by the glory of the Lord. When, one commentator describes this glory as the manifestation of God's presence among his people. Um, now, God's glory, his presence, hadn't been seen in Israel for 500 years. But when it returns, right here, when it returns, the first place God chooses to manifest his glory is in a field to a bunch of shepherds. Just think about that for a moment. That's the first place God manifests his glory when he visits his people. Now, understandably, the shepherds are, are uh, very afraid, right? Verse 9, they're filled with great fear. Or if you're a big Charlie Brown slash King James Version fan, they are sore afraid. Uh, they've probably been dozing, right? Taking turns resting taking watch, right? Uh, when suddenly the night is broken by this angel and the glory of the Lord is shining all around them, that would wake you up a little bit, right? And it's in light of the terror that they have that the angel begins to speak in verse 10. And the first words he says, I love this. I love that angels do this, right? They do it a lot. He says, fear not. Fear not. As frightening as the angel's appearance would have been, as weighty as the glory of God would have been, the angel doesn't come for frightening reasons. He doesn't come for harmful purposes. He comes for a wonderful reason. There is no need for them to fear. But he continues in verse 10, he says, I bring you good news. I bring you good news. This is not going to be news of judgment. It's not going to be news of condemnation, but it is going to be news of blessing. News not of disaster, but of redemption. News not of condemnation, but of salvation. And this news is so good that look what the angel says next. It's not just good news. It's good news of what? Great joy. Good news of great joy. This news is supposed to produce joy. It's not something serious. It's not something somber. This news is, is, is in some to lift up hearts and others to bring laughter, to bring hope. This is good news of great joy that he's about to share with them. And, and, and I, I love a white Christmas. I wish we had snow this year. I'm sad that we don't. Um, I love a roaring fire. Love time with family. Um, I'm learning to love Christmas movies more. Um, still not there on Elf yet, but maybe one day. Um, it's all great, right? For, for many people, Christmas can be great. Other times, it's, it's difficult. Christmas is a hard time of year. Um, our cultural Christmas ends on the 26th. The tree goes down. But this good news has been in season nonstop for 2,000 years. 
It doesn't get put away in the attic the day after Christmas. It doesn't cease to be encouraging, comforting, a source of hope and joy even when Christmas is hard. This message, this news is always good news of great joy. And the angel speaks to the shepherds that they might have great joy. But this news isn't just for them only. Look what the angel says in verse 10. It will be for all the people. For all the people. If you're a human being, if you have a pulse, if you're breathing, this news is for you. It's for people from every background, every circumstance, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every economic class. It doesn't matter. If you are a human being, this news is for you to hear. The angels come bringing good news that you might have great joy too. And what is this news? What is this news? Verse 11. Verse 11 tells us, Unto you this day a child has been born. A Savior has been born who is Christ the Lord. But I don't want to overlook two very important words here. Right? We go right to Christ, Savior, Lord. Those are great words. But there's two little words that make those very, very important. Right? Two little words that completely change this verse. Unto you. Unto you. We can't rush past these words. And imagine if, if you were told, hey, somebody just bought a new car. Great. I, I hope they enjoy it, you know. What's that have to do with me? But if you were told, somebody just bought a new car for you, you're jumping up and down, right? You're excited. You see, these two little words change a simple statement of fact. A child's been born into a personal, generous, life-changing news. Unto you is born. The child doesn't say, or the angel doesn't say a child's been born, but unto you, for you, for you, a child has been born. In these two little words, the shepherds are given a personal interest and a claim in the salvation that this child brings. And friends, these two little words give you that same interest and that same claim in this child's salvation. Unto you has been born a Savior. God has provided this child for you. And who is this child? Well, we know a little already, but the angel uses three terms here. Savior, Christ, and Lord. Savior, Christ, and Lord. Verse 11. He's Savior. He's, he's come to save us from our sins. He's the Christ, the promised Messiah who will reign on David's throne over his people. He's the Lord, God in the flesh, come to dwell among his people his, his, his just woefully undeserving people, right? We, we do not deserve God dwelling among us. And yet he's so gracious to do that. To be told that this child has come for your benefit, for your salvation, to be your king, that's good news of great joy, isn't it? That this is who God has provided for you. Good news of great joy. And the angels give the shepherds a sign. They, they say, here's what you need to look for. Verse 12, this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, a, a manger is an unusual place for a baby to be. But it gives a very clear clue to the shepherds. 
where to go to find this child, right? Probably the only baby in a manger in the whole town of Bethlehem. But before the shepherds can head off into town to find this, this source of good news, of great joy, something glorious happens in verses 13 and 14. We, we see the heavenly host appear and give God glory. They give God glory. Uh, suddenly, verse 13, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, let's read this together. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. One angel becomes many. Thousands and thousands fill the sky rejoicing and praising God. Uh, and their, their song gives him all glory to the God who dwells in the highest place. Saying he alone is worthy of this supreme, weighty majesty and honor that they're singing of. Uh, both because of who he is, but also because what he's done in sending his son. Right? This is the main focus of the angels. God should be glorified. God should be praised. God should be worshipped. And, and friends, this is what it all comes back to. If we, if we simply think about the birth of Christ and we go, yeah, we need to keep the Christ in Christmas, which is, which is well and good, but we don't glorify God, we're missing the point. We're missing the point. It all comes back to God receiving the glory for the salvation that has come through Christ. And the heavenly host then sings about uh, how through this Savior there is a possibility for peace on earth. Peace on earth, verse 14. God's plan in the birth of Christ brings peace between God and man. First of all, this is our, our greatest need. This is the most important peace we need. Peace between God and man. Isaiah 59 verse 2 describes the, the broken relationship that all people naturally have with God. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That's what sin does. It doesn't matter how old you are, if you're in your 80s or if you're 5, it doesn't matter. Your sin separates you from God, right? And, and, and you may think you have a relationship with God, and in one sense you, you do. But if you, if you do not trust Christ, the nature of your relationship with God is not good. It's not good. Sin separates us from God and it places us not in a relationship of peace, but a relationship of enmity. Right? But through Christ, that, that enmity, that hostility is removed. It's taken away. Jesus goes to the cross and makes peace by dealing with our sin that had made an offense. He, he, he takes out the garbage, right? The smell is, is gone, we could say. He atones for our sins on the cross, and those sins are gone forever. Justice is done, and mercy is shown to us. And so there can be peace, because our sin is atoned for. And the birth of the Savior not only brings peace between God and man, but between man and man, between people. When you read the Bible, when you read the New Testament, there's so many instructions and so much wisdom in how to pursue peace with other people and how the gospel affects the way we interact with others when they offend us or hurt us or harm us. Right? We have the example of Christ selflessly laying down his life in love for others. And we're called to follow that example. Right? That is an example of making peace. But we, we might look around and wonder, well, where is this peace? Peace on earth? Are you 
Are you kidding me? All right, we hear of war in Ukraine or in Israel. We hear of political turmoil in Washington, D.C. We hear of mass shootings in schools and in malls, and it's a legitimate question. Where is this peace? Where is this peace? Well, we need to understand that this promise of peace has a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment, and they, they look a little different. They look a little different. You see, until Christ returns, the peace of God's kingdom is found in the heart of his people. It's found in the heart of his people. It's not found in the kingdoms of earth. But when Christ returns, he'll make all things right. He will bring true and lasting peace on the earth. He will completely remove evil. And so while we, we grieve, we lament the evil and the lack of peace that we see around us, right? We shouldn't pretend it's not there. We should grieve. But we can also, as Christians, have a real hope that there will be peace on earth, right? And we, we have the first stage of that now in our own hearts as we've been reconciled to God. And we know that Christ will come and bring that peace to all of creation. And the angels, they continue, this, they say this peace is ultimately for those with whom God is well pleased, literally those upon whom his favor rests. Uh, but, but make no mistake, it's, it's not what people do, it's not what you do or what I do that makes us well pleasing to God. If you could live a perfect life, you might be able to pull it off, right? But I don't know anybody who would raise their hand and say, I'm perfect. I'm perfect, right? None of us would claim that. Even our best deeds, our best works, they're, they're stained with sin. They're, they're usually done for some sort of self-interest reason or they're, they're done in such a way that no glory goes to God. Even our best works don't make us well-pleasing to God. No, the gift of God in his favor is completely due to his mercy and grace because of who he is, not because of who we are. And here too then, he gets all the glory, doesn't he? Right? We can't say, well, God, I was really good and now I have your favor. So I get to take a little bit of the credit here. We can't do that. God says, you're, you're a mess. Right? You, you're, 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 you're a wretched mess. And I'm going to show grace to you. I'm going to place my favor upon you. Not because you deserve it, because I am a gracious God. <laughs> He gets all the glory then, doesn't he? Every ounce. Right, you can't work your way to heaven, friend. You can't earn God's favor. But if you trust in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the child who was born to save you, you'll never find yourself lacking God's favor again. You'll find yourself forgiven, reconciled, adopted, at peace with God. And we see the angels give God all the glory. And in this, they set an example for the shepherds and for us. And that brings us to our, our last point. Verses 15 through 20, God receives the glory from the shepherds. Now imagine that you're the shepherds for a moment. Um, it'd be pretty hard to ignore this, right? It'd be pretty hard to ignore such good news. I'm sure they had a moment where they said, did you see that? Yeah, did you see that? And then they head off into Bethlehem, right? Quickly, they don't waste time. Verses 15 and 16 tell us they head right into town to go see this thing that the Lord has made known to us. And they do. Verse 16, they find the baby lying in a manger, just like the angel said. They find this baby wrapped in swaddling cloth, who is Christ the Lord, just as they were told. It's all as the angels said. And, and, and they excitedly share what they've heard from the angels with Mary and Joseph. Verse 17, they, they say everything that had been made known to them concerning this child. And when we look at verse 18, it, it seems that maybe there's other there, others there in, in the, the, the stall, right, in the barn, who are listening and 
we read in verse 18, they wonder at it. They don't quite understand what these shepherds are saying. What, a savior, a child, this baby? They don't, they don't quite understand. They don't know what's going on. But to Mary and Joseph, these are not surprising words. They're wonderful words. We read in verse 19 that Mary, she hears all these things and she treasures them up. They are precious to her, these things concerning her son. Not just because he is her son, but because he is her savior. She treasures up these wonderful things, keeping them safe, treating them like precious gems. And, and she ponders them. She reflects on them. She replays the shepherd's words over and over again in her mind, reflecting on these things. These familiar truths were not boring to Mary. They were sweet. They were precious. They were valuable. They were incredible. Now we've heard the Christmas story, most of us, many times. May we, like Mary, not grow tired of that message of good news of great joy, but every time we hear it, Lord, may it give us a thrill of hope. And the shepherds, having found their Savior, having seen promise, the, the promise of God given to them, they return to their fields in verse 20. But notice the way they go. They go glorifying and praising God. They don't go, oh, that was cool. Back to the sheep, right? They go rejoicing. They recognize nothing's going to be the same after this. God's fulfilling His promises. History has changed. They go and join the song of the angels. Heaven and earth together, joyfully praising the God who saves. They give God the glory. Again, we know the Christmas story. We've heard it before. But it's not a quaint fairy tale. It's not a legend. It's a source of true hope. It's a reminder and a proof to you that God has not abandoned you, but he has visited you. It's a reminder and proof that God's not oblivious to you, but he has plans to redeem you. It's a reminder and a proof that God is not apathetic towards you. He's not uncaring, but he has a great and merciful love for you. And it's because of that, for that reason, that God sent a Savior, His only Son, to be born under the law, to keep it perfectly, doing what we couldn't do. And then to say, I will take their place and bear the penalty and punishment they deserve on the cross. And then three days later, rise again, triumphant over death, sin, and Satan. And even though that happened 2,000 years ago, it matters just as much today as it did then. And it demands a response today just as much as it did then. And so what should our response be to this good news of great joy? Well, I want to suggest two simple things for you. Uh, number one, first, you must believe. You must believe. The shepherds believed. Mary believed. God calls all people everywhere to believe his word. To trust in Jesus, his son, for salvation. That's the first response. Believe God and believe in Jesus whom he has sent. Believe God has sent this Savior to you. It's, it's, it's not too good to be true. I promise. It's great, but it's not too good to be true. It's so good that it is true. Believe what God has said. Give up your own attempts to earn your way into heaven. Rest in what Jesus has done for you. Now second, if you have believed, you get to rejoice. You get to rejoice. And, and I don't mean joy 
in the sense of I'm really happy, things are great, I'm super chipper and cheerful, la-di-da-di-da. That's not Christian joy. You can actually be sorrowful and joyful at the same time as a Christian. Did you know that? You can be sorrowful and joyful as a Christian at the same time. Um, true joy is a settled and glad confidence, not in your circumstances, but in your God and in his promises. That's true joy. If you've believed in Christ, whether or not Christmas is a, a wonderful time for you or whether it's a hard time for you, uh, you can still have true joy, a settled confidence in your God and his promises. Right? If you've believed, then your sins are forgiven. If you've believed, then God is not your judge, but he's your father. If you've believed, then you've been brought out of darkness into light. If you've believed, you have every reason to have this kind of glad, settled joy that comes from Christ, whether times are easy or hard, that is still available for you. If you've believed, then you have hope in Christ. And if you have hope in Christ, you can have joy in Christ. And with the shepherds, we too can join the angel's song, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Merry Christmas. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we give you glory in the highest. Lord, there is no greater Savior than the one you've provided, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though born in, in a humble manger, born with such simple beginnings, Lord, yet you choose the, the weak and seemingly foolish things in the eyes of the world to accomplish your purposes, that you would receive all the glory. And Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ, for there is no one in this room who does not need him. There is no one in this room who is too good for him or who is too bad for him. Lord, you have given this Savior for us. Unto us, Lord, is born this child. Lord, if there are any here who have not trusted him for salvation, who have not believed in him, who have not given their lives to him, Lord, I pray that they would do so today, that they would see that this child is for them that this is your gift of love for them. And Lord, if there are those who are, uh, Lord, uh, finding themselves um, dealing with difficulties and suffering this Christmas, Lord, I, I pray that you would provide some peace for their hearts, knowing what they have in Christ, knowing your love for them demonstrated in the birth of your Son. And Lord, I pray all of us would walk out here today as we celebrate tomorrow that we would give you the glory, that we would say our God has been so good. And though I don't deserve any of it, he has given his grace to me beyond what I can measure. And Lord, may we indeed continue to glorify your name as we rejoice in the birth of your son. Lord, we cannot thank you enough. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.